Okay, we've been talking, exploring, learning about the Trinity, and it's been a thrill for me to dig into it. Um, I'm going to share something this morning, even that I have just learned in the past couple of weeks that's really cool as I've delved into this. Um, if you remember, we don't worship a God who is one alone, solitary one, a simple one. He is a complex one. God's oneness is a oneness of plurality. God exists in a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. As a family, that's how he exists. That's the very nature of who he is. So we've been learning about that and kind of leaning into it. And, you know, like I said, that, that's, that thing is kind of hard to understand. That's why you don't hear a lot of teaching on the Trinity. It's, uh, and because of that, we just tend to put it on, the, on the, the shelf and just feel like, you know, okay, I believe it, but I don't get it, and that has no practical understanding. But I've been trying to make the point that it actually has a lot of practical implications. That's why we've been asking the so what question. Is there a so what to this? And there's a, there's a lot of really big so what's in my mind of how this really speaks to my life and how I live and how we as a body live. Um, and I've used this, I think, for three weeks now, but I love this quote by St. Augustine that in no other subject is error more dangerous. I'm hoping to hit on that next week. Or inquiry more laborious. Trust me, that's very true. Or the discovery of truth more profitable, more profitable. And so we are really leaning into that. And last week I said a really important truth that I'm learning about the Trinity, and that is that they are the model community, that they show us what any human relationship should look like, especially the relationships here in this body and this church. Um, so last week I started out by asking, what does this divine community look like, and what is the life within this, in the Trinity? What is the life like? And I want to continue in that vein this morning. Last week we looked at what I called, somebody else is called the shyness of God. And this morning, we're going to look at another aspect. And in all of that, we're asking a larger, really important question, which is, as God's new community, how are we, a 12th Avenue Baptist church, how are we to live and interact with each other? So I want to start this morning. Turn to the book of Genesis, first chapter, first page of the Bible. That's where we're going to kind of start. I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes. Um, I'm going to be all over the place with Scripture. There's going to be a lot of Scripture on the screen. But if you look in Genesis chapter 1, here's what's amazing to me, is I've been in Genesis 1 and 2 every week that we've talked about this. There is actually so much richness even in this. And in Genesis 1, we learned, we saw hints of the plurality of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We saw that God exists in community and that we are created to live in community there. And so I want to come back to that. I want to show you something else that it tells us there. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the creation of humankind, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. And then in Genesis 2, verse 24, it says this, that that is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he is united to his wife, and they become one, echad, that Hebrew word, they become one flesh. And here's what I want you to see in this, these two texts this morning, is that when God created mankind, humankind, he not only created them to live in community, but he created them as male and female. He created them as male and female. In other words, he created them different from one another different from one another, as two separate genders, which each of them imaging a different aspect of God, different aspect of who He is. I don't have time to go into all the research, because we live in a culture that's trying to, 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 to tap down on gender differences and all of that. Um, 
I can go to a lot of secular research in the last 20 years, articles in mainstream magazines that have talked about the differences between men and women. The differences are very real, but that's not my purpose today. What I do want to say is that needless to say that those differences are real, that does not imply any superiority at all. Man and woman both image God, and as such, we all have equal standing, equal dignity, equal personhood before Him, though still being distinct from each other. Um, we are all loved and valued by God, okay? That's really significant. Also to me what's significant is because, as we saw in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that He created them in His image. And there's a lot of ways I think people have thought about this, that we image Him, but one of the ways we actually image Him is this, is that there is a diversity within God's unity. There is diversity within His unity. So as such, we learn that within the unity of God, there is diversity that God is a diverse community of one. You're going to hear that word a lot today, and I want to say one brief thing about that word, okay? Just because a culture takes a word and maybe uses it differently than originally intended or applies it in a different way doesn't mean that I should allow them to co-opt a good word, right? And so I'm going to, keep, I'm going to use that word all throughout this because it's a good word, and what we're going to see in God is amazing, and we really need to reflect His unity and diversity both within us. So just wanted to say that about how we relate to culture. So in God, we're dealing with three very real persons, three co-equal, co-eternal, co-existing persons. And though one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're different from each other. They have different functions. They have unique and special roles in the ways that they relate to each other and the ways they relate to creation. Okay? They are fully equal in nature. Father is God. The Son is God, the Spirit is God, one essence, but yet at the same time, they're distinct and different from one another. And I want to show you what that looks like. Can I show you what that looks like? Because Scripture does talk about it. Basil the Great, one of the early church fathers, he wrote this, every divine action begins from the Father, proceeds through the Son, and is completed in the Holy Spirit. So in regarding the plan of God, you frequently see people theologians, whatever, reference, speak this way, that God conceives of the plan, that the Son implements the plan, that the Spirit applies and completes the plan, that He's the one that brings it all to fruition. A little bit of a simplified idea, but I'm going to show you in a minute. I think there's biblical reality that's behind that. Um, For me personally, when I think of their roles, here's what is most helpful for me. If I think of the creative act, this is the thing that's most helpful for me to imagine the functions or roles that they play. Um, think of a book. Every author begins with an idea, right? And then they take pen and paper, and that essence of that idea, they put it, they put it literally onto a piece of paper that can be read, which would be the sun, the action of the sun. And then, but that's not, the creative act is not complete till somebody picks up the book, till they read it, till they understand it, and it impacts them. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, I love, to me, even this one makes more sense. That makes a lot of sense, but even this one more. A composer conceives of a piece of music, a great piece of music in their mind. That's the father. He puts it into a physical form in, in the score. That's the son. And then a maestro or conductor takes that, and he leads an orchestra as they play it, making beautiful music, and that's the spirit. Does that make sense? That's, that's what's helpful for me to think of it that way. Um, Another way the differing roles within the Trinity have been expressed over the centuries is in this way, that in the Bible, creation is primarily attributed to the Father, 
mankind's salvation is particularly or principally attributed to the Son, and personal regeneration and renewal are mainly attributed to the Spirit. So in the three members of the Spirit, you see that one is creator, one is redeemer, one is sanctifier. That's a way through the centuries of the church, one way they've talked about the roles of the Trinity. You know, last week when I talked about the shyness of the Trinity, I talked about the mutuality within the Trinity, and that applies to this topic of God's unity, His unity and His diversity. Um, because in all of this, they all, Father, Son, and Spirit, have a mutuality of purpose. They all have a mutuality of purpose. They don't have different agendas, um, different wills. They have a common will, and they have a shared mission in everything they do. So while Father, Son, and Spirit have unique and special roles, the Scripture also shows us that the three persons of the Trinity are acting in harmony in all that they do, in all that they do. Um, Scripture does indicate that each member takes the lead role in various activities. And we're going to hit in a minute, I'm going to give you five of these, that each member takes a specific lead in the role. But even though they take a specific primary lead in a role, that doesn't mean that they're siloed and they only do that role, that, that role, or that the other members of the Trinity don't involve themselves in that thing. Um, actually, what we're going to see is that in each of those roles, in each of those roles, that the members are present and actively participating in full cooperation for the common goal. So, five examples of this. When you think of the act of creation... Okay, some of these are real obvious, others not quite so obvious. I could even tell first service the ones people like, I'm not sure, I don't want to say the wrong thing. But when you think of creation, who do you normally think of? I'm curious. Father, I saw somebody say Father. That's what I think. Um, that's what I think of. In the Holy Scriptures, the work of creation is primarily attributed to the Father. Genesis 1, which is where we are. If you look at verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And while the Father functions primarily as the Creator, um, we see that the Holy Spirit and the Son are also involved. Verse 2, look at verse 2 of Genesis 1. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's a Hebrew word for a hen that's brooding over her chicks, caring for them, giving special attention to them. And you find the Son referenced in Colossians 1.16. In Colossians 1.16, where it says, In Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers and authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So we see the whole Trinity working together in this act of creation. When you think of salvation, who do you mainly think of? Jesus. Yeah, this is the one time the Sunday school answer really works well. Jesus, the Son. And rightfully so. And rightfully so, because in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this of him, that salvation is found in no one else, because there is no other name given among heaven, given among men under heaven, whereby men must be saved. I've memorized the New American Standard, so if it doesn't totally fit, that's okay. So it's accurate that the Son is the primary one spoken to in relation to salvation. But Father and Spirit are intimately involved in our redemption. One example is Ephesians 2.18 that has all three members of the Trinity in it. Now, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So we see all three in the salvation act. Hebrews 9.14 is a great scripture. If you're a note taker, write down Hebrews 9.14 and read that later. It's a cool verse that talks about the role of all three in salvation. 
How about when you think of the resurrection of Jesus? Who do you primarily think of as raising him from the dead? Who would you say? Not sure. I think of the Father raising him from the dead. Like it says in Acts 2.32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. But in John 10, 17, 18, Jesus says something really interesting of himself. He says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus is even involved in his own resurrection. He raises, rises from the dead. And Romans 1, 3 to 4 speaks of the Holy Spirit's involvement, where it talks about the good news is about his son, the son of God the Son of God, and He was shown to be the Son of God when He was raised from the dead by the power of who? Of the Holy Spirit. So all three get in on that act. This is a pretty easy one, I think. When you think of the indwelling, God like coming and living inside of you and transforming you, who do you tend to think of? Who's primary? The Holy Spirit. Um, And while He is chiefly the one that's talked about in the indwelling, um, I want to show you a passage of Scripture that talks about all three playing this role. John 14, 16 to 20 and verse 23. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him for He lives with you and He will be what? He will be in you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are on me, you are in me, and I am, I am in you. That's why in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I I live, yet not I, but Christ lives within me, because he knew the reality that Jesus has this indwelling role. And then verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. The Father will love them. We, the Father and I, will come to them and make our home with them. So even the Father is involved in this indwelling. And finally, when you think of the spiritual gifts, who do you think of primarily being the one involved with spiritual gifts? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. And while that is the case, I want you to know all three members of the Trinity get in this game too. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, here's what it says. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit who distributes them. Verse 5, there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, Jesus, who determines where you will use that gift. Spirit says, this is the gift you'll have. Jesus says, this is where I want you to use it. And then verse 6, there are different kinds of working or effect, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. So the Father's the one that says, I'm going to determine the effect of that, how the impact that's going to come out of that. So here's what we've learned this morning, that both unity and diversity exist within God, right? That within the three persons who comprise the one God, there are personal distinctions. There are personal distinctions. That each member of the Trinity is a unique person who functions in a different way in relation to the one divine plan. So here's what I love about this. This is not a vanilla God that we serve, right? He is not a bland unity Somebody came to me after the service and said, that's right, he's not a vanilla God, he's Neapolitan, right? Chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla, isn't that awesome? Though personally, I tend to eat a lot of the vanilla, throw a little bit of strawberry and leave the chocolate for Pat and the girls. Um, God's unity, 
Here's what I love the scripture teaches. Is his unity is revealed in this, this beautiful diversity. That that's who he is. That he embraces both of those things in his nature. That the triune God in his very being is a unity of diversity. A unity of diversity. That's who he is. But it gets even better. It gets even better because it's, it's not just he has this unity. That God is at total peace and harmony within himself. There's no division, discord. There's no competition. They enjoy each other. They're at total peace. Jonathan Edwards said, Father, Son, Spirit constitute the supreme harmony of all. So like they like it, what they're doing. There's just this harmony in them. Do you see how profound this idea is? Not just this idea. Do you see how profound God is? Because if you think about it, um, this va- we all value and long to attain to both unity and diversity. But this has been one of the major human problems, philosophical, practical problems since the fall of Adam, is that nobody knows how to create this kind of community that has unity and diversity both, and nobody knows how to attain it, even if I try to make it, right? And here's what the Trinity tells me, that this is not a pipe dream, this deep human longing that we have for, for unity and diversity to be in a group, that this, this human longing that we have, that it, this is built into the universe because this is who God is, and it is baked into us. That's why we long for this. That's why you hear so much about this thing. I want you to know the reality is, here's what I love about this. The reality is, is God is the only basis of actually living this out because it's who he is. It's the only basis. God truly is the model community for us. Is God not beautiful? I mean, every time I think about who he is in his triune nature, I am blown away by who he is and that he in his triune nature is the model for me, but the model for us. So what about us? What about us? I want to start with, uh, with diversity. God embodies a diversity. He loves diversity. He creates in diversity. C.S. Lewis talks about God could have created just one flower, right? Millions of tulips, but he didn't. He created thousands of kinds of flowers. He could have created just one big cat, but thankfully, because I love big cats, he created lots of kinds of big cats, right? Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Though the bears aren't cats, but uh, my grandkids would tell me that. That's not a cat, Papa. That God has designed his church. This is really important to be a community of unified diversity, just like himself. Unified diversity. So I want to talk about that diversity. Several ways that I find this in Scripture, how he designed his body. The first one is diversity just generationally. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, Paul preaching that first sermon after Jesus' resurrection. He says, this, what you're seeing is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In a healthy body of Christ, there will be a diversity of generations, right? Young to the very oldest. There will be a, that's what a healthy body, and in a healthy body, they interact with each other, and they know each other, they love each other, they care about each other. So here's a question I want to ask. I've been asking these of myself, trust me, for more than a week. But here, I want to ask you, are you intentionally pursuing relationships with others who are outside of your generation in this body? Are you with intentionality? 
trying to get to know people from another generation in this body. The second way I see diversity in the body is personality and uniqueness. Um, we see personality and uniqueness in the Godhead, and He creates us in His image. And it's that way in the body. Some of us are extroverts, some are introverts, right? Some of us are thinkers, some of us are doers. Some of us are, are courageous and bold and adventurous, some of us are pretty cautious and conservative. Some are fast, some are slow. Some of us are more expressive, some of us are a little more reserved, right? Right? And I want you to know this is God's intent and it is His design. It's how He wants things. And we need to allow this and we need to embrace those differences to appreciate them. And not just appreciate them, I think we need to lean into them. Because when I lean into somebody who has a personality different than mine, what it does is God takes my extremes with things and He helps to, he helps to bring me in a little bit and make me more of a well-rounded person. We need those differences among ourselves. So I have a question. Do you make room for other personality types to be expressed in this body? Do you make room for other personality types to be expressed in this body? And among other things, our personalities, our unique personalities mean we all have different preferences on things, right? We all have different preferences. Some of us like pop music, some like country. Can you tell how old I am, by the way, from that? Some of you were like, yeah, I remember those guys. Uh, some of us like comedies and dramas. You can tell some of my favorites from this. Some of us like chocolate, some like vanilla. I'm a vanilla guy. Um, some of us, it's Pepsi and Coke. Can I hear for Pepsi? Yeah, thank you. Uh, though I have found, I, I've gone from Pepsi to Coke more as I get older. That must be a generational thing, I'm not sure. But, uh, or we could just say Mountain Dew and all the other sodas. Maybe that's a better way to talk about it. Some of us, it's cats or dogs. Or if we really walk with God, it's horses, right? Got an amen from Karen Eklund over here in first service. But here's what I want you to see, that in, we all have personal preferences in the way we think about church and the way it should be done. Do you know that? Trust me, I know this more than anybody. Everybody in here has their personal preferences, the way they think what this church should look like and the way we should do things. Um, so here's my question is, can you allow this to be a place? Can you allow this to be a place where your preferences don't have to reign supreme? Can you let this be a place where your preferences don't have to reign supreme? There's another way in which God has designed His church to be diverse. It is His, inter His intent that we to be diverse ethnically. The church at Antioch, which is the premier church in the book of Acts, had people on their leadership team from cultures all around the Mediterranean. If I, if I could show you that text, I've actually got a picture of this and what the people from those regions probably look like. Very diverse. Revelation 7-9 reveals to us the ultimate ethnic makeup of God's church when it says in that place there will be people there from every nation, from every tribe, every people, every language. Amen to that? And that's why that's so important here. And that's why we have the nations that are actually here because this is what God longs for. His desire is that we be a gathering of people of, from our local ethnicities that this should be a place that we're able to mix, Okay? And that's why Jesus said in Mark eleven seven, 7, he says, Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? For all nations. This is his desire. So here's my question. Do you purposely reach across those ethnic differences here at 12th in order to make this a more welcoming community? 
Do you purposely reach across those to make this a more welcoming community? There's another way I see God has baked diversity into his church, and it's through the gifts of the Spirit. The primary places you find this is in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says this. Just as our bodies have many parts, each part has a special function. So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of how many bodies? Of, of one body. And we all belong to each other. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. I just want to read from Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, some of what it says about spiritual gifts, because I've talked about this before. We are the body of Christ, and each one of us is a part of it. We all have different gifts, and each one of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit, and it is given for the common good, for the common good. And to each of us, a gift has been given for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up as each part does its work, as each part does its work. So here's my question. Number one, are you serving this body in some form? Because we're not created to just show up and consume. That's not how the Trinity functions, okay? Are you serving the body? Are you using the gifts and abilities God has given you for the common good here? One final way, I see diversity in the body. Though we are unified around Jesus, and we are biblically orthodox in both belief and practice, okay? Biblically orthodox. I want you to know until Jesus comes, there will be a diversity of views and a diversity of practices in secondary issues, secondary issues. Um, yesterday, we had the grandkids. We had them overnight Friday. Yesterday was colder than Friday, right? So the, the normal routine on the morning is when they get up, they all come and jump in bed with us, which is I love that when we had kids, right? And the windows, they were looking out the window outside upstairs, and it was kind of frosted over. And they're like, you know, Papa, we can't see. Somebody should fix that. You know, here's what Paul says in, in, Romans, in 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, Scripture's clear on the big things of orthodoxy. It's very clear. But Paul says until Jesus comes, we see things like in a foggy mirror kind of thing. That's what it's like. That's the reality. And that's why there are differences Theological secondary issues, differences in the way we practice some things. If you want to know examples of those, I'm not going to give them this morning, but if you listen to the podcast Jordan and I are going to do, I'm going to talk about orthodoxy. I'm going to define that, which is what we all agree on here, and I'm going to define what some of those differences are. But I just want you to know that it's that way here. It was that way in the believing community in Rome, and we see it in chapters 14 and 15. Regarding different practices, here's what Paul says about that church in verse 2 of chapter 14, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another who is weak in faith eats only vegetables. Regarding beliefs, in verse 5 of chapter 14, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day alike. Okay? Diversity of belief and practice on secondary issues. And then here's what Paul wrote. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or falls. I love that. So, my question on that is this, can you allow others in this body to have differing convictions 
on secondary issues without demanding conformity to your view? Can you allow other people in this body to have a differing opinion on secondary theological issues, a differing opinion on secondary issues on how we live out our faith? Can you allow that without demanding conformity to your view? Jesus intentionally creates church bodies with diverse generations, personalities, preferences, ethnicity, giftings, difference of views and practices and secondary issues. And I just want you to know within the, bound, the boundaries of orthodoxy, which is what we practice here, we are to enjoy and to embrace those differences. I like what C.S. Lewis said in his excellent book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, where he said this, it takes all sorts to make a world or a church. This may be even truer of a church If grace perfects nature, it must expand all our natures into the full richness of the diversity which God intended when he made them. And heaven will display far more variety than hell. I love that. Heaven will display far more variety than hell. Twelfth, I mean, I think you know this. I don't have to tell you this. We are a very diverse body here. We are very diverse. We are all in agreement on orthodoxy. Again, listen to the podcast if you want to hear that defined. But on secondary issues, on belief and practice, there, I know there's a wide diversity here. And I want to tell you, it is beautiful that way. This is how God intended it until Jesus comes because we, we just all see through a glass, right? Like it's, it's fogged over. We don't need groupthink here. Will Rogers is famous for saying, if two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary, Go, Will Rogers. I have been in a church that has a long list on secondary doctrinal issues, a pretty long list upon which everybody has to agree, and a pretty long list of practices, secondary things of how you have to live your faith, and they demand conformity on that. They demand a unity of conformity. I've been in a church like that, okay? This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of Jesus. And as Baptists, sometimes people ask me, like, what's a Baptist? Of the, of the five core issues that a Baptist believes, one of them is what is called soul liberty or Christian liberty, that outside of orthodoxy, the things we agree on, that I have in humility before the God and with the Holy Spirit and my understanding of Scripture, I have the ability on secondary issues to come to my view on that theologically and on secondary issues of practice that under the Holy Spirit's guidance, I can come to my conviction of how to live. Does that make sense? That's a very Baptist thing. So that's, that's why I love 12th. In fact, in April, I'm going to do a series on that topic of Christian liberty. To me, it's so foundational. We'll be in Romans 14, 15, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 to see what God has to say about that. And now I want to, I want to shift gears. Um, I feel pretty strongly about that. This, can you tell? I think this is so important. It's because I've been in a body that demanded conformity and it wasn't healthy. Now, do you want to know the reason our diversity has not imploded this church? Because sometimes diversity implodes a church. Do you want to know why that's happened here at 12? Because of the second thing, which is unity, which is unity. We talked about diversity. Now, I want to hit unity. God exists in unity. He loves unity. And he designed his church to be a community of diversified unity, thereby embodying him. And when I was thinking about this, the first thing I wrote down is unity is non-negotiable biblically. And I think if I invited Al up here, 
I said, oh, what was the most important things to you? He would have said, unity is a non-negotiable, non-negotiable biblically. That's what I would have said. In Acts 4.32, it says of the early church that all the believers were one in heart and mind. Paul, who planted numerous churches around that Greco-Roman world that were a mixture of Jew-Gentile, of male-female, of rich and poor, of slave and free, very diverse lot of people, he wrote in Acts 2.2, this, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And what's interesting to me is he spoke the most about this unity of believers to the church, the believers in the church of Rome. You see the most verses on this to them because that was the most diverse church in the whole Roman Empire was the church in Rome. So in Romans 12, 18, he says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. In Romans 14, 19, let us make every effort, make every effort to do what leads to peace. That idea was so important to him that makes every effort. He said it twice. He said it to the believers in Ephesus where he said in Ephesians 4, 2 to 3, be completely humble. Let me get there. It's here somewhere. Oh, it's on there, right? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In that English, make every effort. It's one Greek word that's very strong, and it has a sense of intense urgency. It is to pursue something earnestly. It was used of a person, a hunter, chasing relentlessly after his prey. In the words of one commentator regarding unity, we are to take the initiative on this. We are to pay whatever price it takes for us to make this happen. That's how strong this word is, make every effort. So the direct command of Scripture is that we diligently actively work to protect and keep the unity of the body. It matters to God because God is one. It matters to Him. So no gossip no demanding my preferences, no raising issues of secondary beliefs or practice to a level of primary and judging other people on those things. Okay, that's not how we live in a body that's unified. And let me say, not simply unity, because of God. God is a God of harmony, and Paul says in Romans 12, um, he says this, live in harmony with one another. In an orchestra, unity, harmony comes when every instrument is tuned to the same note initially, or if you're in, I don't sing, but if you're a singer, you, you saw that a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? If you're a singer, you take the, not the pitchfork, I always say pitchfork, the tuning fork, I said that like a year ago, the tuning fork, and whatever note that is, everybody tunes to that. When you're tuned to that note, you're in harmony with each other, right? In harmony. So my question is, what are we all to be attuned to? What are we to be unified around What's to be the center of who we are? What would you say? Yeah. Is it our individuality, our uniqueness? No. That's what our culture says, but that's not what the Bible says. Is it our diversity? Are we to be united around that? Again, our culture tells us that, but that's not what the Bible says. It's something much larger, that we're to be unified around Jesus, around the triune God, and around the kingdom of God. That is the thing that we all focus on, that we point to, and that we're running towards together. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 6.33, we seek first in everything the kingdom of God. That's what we seek first. In the words of Paul in Galatians 3, 26 and 28, I love this text. You are all children of God through faith in Jesus the Messiah. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all, you're all what? All 
one in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. We're all one. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, that there is one body, one spirit, that we're called to one hope when we were called, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And here's what that means, that at 12th Avenue, we are not a bounded, set church that is focused on identifying all the boundaries that make people in or out here. That's not our focus. We are what's called a centered set church, where what we're centered on is Jesus Christ, and that what matters is, is direction, and that we are moving towards Him, and we're loving Him and following Him. There's a big difference between those two kinds of churches. I've been in both. One demands high degree of conformity. The other allows for diversity, but asks for unity. That's what the centered set church is. So, God exists in a oneness of plurality. He is a loving community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All are fully equal. They're fully God. And yet each has very distinct roles and functions. So God exists as a unity of diversity. And I want you to know He longs for us. He longs for us to embody that to a watching world. He longs for us to do that. You know... For nearly three decades now, that has been, not perfectly, but that's been the reality of 12th Avenue for nearly three decades. And as long as I'm here, as long as some of our deacons are here, as long as our staff that we have and our ministry leaders are here, it's going to stay that way, okay? You got to get rid of quite a lot of us if you want us to get rid of our diversity and just be about conformity, okay? Um, So 12th, let's keep it up. Let's keep being a healthy biblical community, right? I applaud, I applaud you guys because I can talk about it. It's one thing for the body to live it, and I feel like over the years you guys have done a great job. So, And here's why this is so important, this unity of a diverse body, why it's so important. Because Jesus said in John 13, 35, he says, do you want to know how people are going to know that you're my followers? It's by this, that you love one another. That's how people are going to know. And then in John 17, he takes it even a step further, where he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray for those who will, all, who will believe in me through this, their message, so us, that all of them may be, maybe what? Maybe one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, so that they can believe you have sent me, that they may be one as we are One, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then, when we're living in that way, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So when we reflect and embody what the Trinity is in love and diversity, I want you to know that is the thing that most draws the lost people who don't know God towards him because when they see that reality in us, that says that's the God that they worship. Do you see how important this is? This is so, so important. As Francis Schaeffer said, our love and our unity are the final apologetic. You can have all the arguments, do all the things, but the thing that speaks most to people is, is this dream that everybody has this longing for, a community that is diverse and unified that we can, it's so hard to see at work, right? It's so hard that they can be like, that is a place that's as close as it gets, not perfectly, but as close as it gets. Man, we, we live in a culture that desperately needs to see this. You hear it all the time, but nobody knows how to do it. We need to show them.
John Orberg wrote this. He said, The doctrine of the Trinity is honored when the oneness that characterizes it, the unity of the Spirit, is prized and guarded and revered. Wherever the unity of the Spirit is treated cavalierly, the Trinity is dishonored. To tolerate disunity with the people God loves, particularly disunity in the body of Christ, or to do things that could lead to disunity, it is utterly unthinkable, utterly unthinkable. To allow or contribute to disunity in this fellowship is to be fundamentally at odds with God. Anybody here want to be fundamentally at odds with God? (laughs) I don't. So 12th, this is the core of who he is, diversity and unity, and he loves it when we embody this as a body here. Um, and as I was thinking about this this week, do you want to know what the key to all this is? It's when Jesus says that if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you'll bear much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. If I'm not walking with him and I'm not abiding, relating to the triune God on a daily basis, I'm talking to him, I'm in his word so that he can, his life comes in me and forms me and then lives through me, that we're going to fail at this here. So we've all got to be walking with God. So my final question is, how's your walk with God? Because we're not going to do this if you're not abiding with him. Okay. Would you close your eyes for a minute? I haven't done this in several months. I just want to finish. You know, head, heart, hands. I want to know what is, before the Lord, what would you say? What is the single most important thing you learned this morning? Single most important thing you learned. always more importantly is what did God speak to me? What this morning as I came here, what did the Spirit know that I needed to hear? What did I need to hear? And then what am I going to do about it? How am I going to apply this to my walk this week? So would you stand with me? triune God, I continue to be amazed at who you are, that you not only exist in this community of love, but Lord, that you are a community that's the hallmark of you is this, is this diversity and oneness, and it's something we so long for. Father, I thank you for this church. One of the things that drew me here and kept me here was how this place tried to embody that. May we continue to do that. Lord, I know if there's a way that Satan wants to attack this church, it is on this point to create disunity over small issues, preferences, secondary issues that don't matter, Lord, and start division with the body. So would you be guarding us against that? And Lord, just help us to be abiding in you, walking with you, so that this reality, your life is flowing in us, can flow outwardly so that this is the kind of body we can become. And so we pray in the name of Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Do you not want to be this kind of body? Reflects God? I do. So, all right, 12th, you are sent. I have no idea what you're going to do the rest of the day, but you are sent to a lazy Sunday.